Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. You know, it's a great Thursday morning to talk about cooperatives working together to get things done. And we have Miss Diane Gassaway on the line this morning to tell us how to do that. But, you know, this year is the 100th year that NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, has been in existence. And they're celebrating 100 years. And we're working with them. And this month, because it's Women's History Month, we're celebrating and talking about how cooperatives uh, have helped women in their flight in the U.S. and around the world. Diane, good morning. How are you doing? Hi, good, thank you. Great. So just to getting started, how uh, did you get involved in co-ops, and how have you seen where co-ops have helped women? Well, I um, have to admit I am an accidental cooperator. Accidental? Yeah, (laughs) I'm I uh, fell into it because of family connections, um, and interestingly enough, I came out of um, a corporate banking world, and um, I'm a total convert. <laughs> I never want to go back there again, and uh, and it makes a good story for when I'm uh, speaking to new groups of people looking at cooperatives, um, and you know what's the what's the dark side and what's the, the light side, if you will. Mm-hmm. So. Where I've worked with co-ops and women have been um, in a number of different sectors. Um, it's helped them um, in uh, getting access to child care. It's helped them in creating their own job uh, career path through home care worker cooperatives. It um, helped them get their families' goods and services to market. And uh, one woman that we worked with, her family had been um, engaged in apples for decades. And, um, and they realized that they needed to start diversifying, and so she was the driver behind that, got involved with the co-op, and, and now they're selling all kinds of fruits and vegetables. Um, so they're not just a, a monoculture agriculture farm now. Um, so those are just a, some brief examples. So let's go all the way back to this accidental cooperative, cooperator. <laughs> yeah. I, I like the way that sounds because it almost fits me, um, but but – you said your family was involved, and therefore you got involved. So what can you tell that story a little bit more? Well, it's, it's kind of a sad story, actually. Okay. Um, I grew up in um, southeastern Washington in a small town near Walla Walla, 2,500 people. It's out in, it's at the edge of the Palouse, um, which is well-known for their wheat and barley crop. And most of the folks out there are really big farmers. Um, my grandparents had homesteaded out there, and they grew um, wheat and uh, and even though I I was what we call a townie, but we didn't live on the farm. We lived in town. We were surrounded by um, co-ops. The the community was served by an, a rural electric co-op. People took their grain to the grain growers, and they're a co-op. And they picked up their farm supply from the farm bureau, another co-op. Um, what uh, probably CHS was involved back then, although I didn't know about them. Um, but I did know about these other folks, and I had no idea that a cooperative was a different kind of business model, that um, it really could help a person do 
you know, that which you can't do alone. And when I, as I was growing up, you know, my thing was I needed to get out of that community. I didn't see a future for me other than being, you know, maybe uh, a wheat farmer's wife, and there was not a lot of industry there. So it was just, you know, I, I, I wanted to go to the to the big city. Um, and, but you were already and, in the city. Well, I am now, but I wasn't <laughs> then. <laughs> 2,500 people? No, that wasn't a city to me. <laughs> so when I did, you know, finally learn about co-op at age 40, I was just amazed. You know, had I known about the business model, I might have not left that community, realizing that I um, had some power as an individual if I could find others to cooperate with me. So I, how I found out about it is that um, my stepfather was a, a general manager and uh, of a, an electric co-op. And uh, after I had moved to the big city, to Olympia, Washington, through family connections, had a brief interview with a general manager for the statewide association who was looking for an office manager, legislative assistant. And I went in and interviewed with them, and that's when I, that was my whole introduction. And they hired me on the spot. And I've been doing this for uh, 16 years now. So you grew up around co-ops but didn't know about them. Right. Left the community because you just did not want to be a, a housewife or a farmer's wife. That's your only vision that you had for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you went to the bigger city and you got a job working for a co-op or an well, association of co-ops. I went to the big city and went, and went to work for a bank first. Okay. And then uh, later, you know, uh, what? 25 years later, I finally learned about co-op, and I had business classes in college. Nobody teaches uh, co-op. It's never brought up, or at least wasn't back then. It is starting to be now, but there's still a huge, huge gap in that um, education. Well, I got an MBA from a very prestigious school, Stanford, mm-hmm. and graduated in 1976, and nowhere was there any conversation about co-ops. And later I found, in 2012, I found that Leland Stanford, who started Stanford, and he was a senator, he tried to, he introduced legislation for worker co-ops. Somewhere he got the vision, the light, because he was a uh, capitalist, he was a railroad baron, but he introduced legislation for worker co-ops, and he started a scoop. And it all happened, it seemed like he got the light when his son passed away, his only child which is sad, but it, it helped him to get the light that education is important and workers owning their own businesses is extremely important. But I, I wasn't taught anything at Stanford, nowhere. In any yeah. of my education that I hear anything about this business co-op, I accidentally got into it because I started managing housing co-ops uh-huh. and had fallen in love with the model because of what it does, and this is why National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to get more and more people to understand because – all, all during 2012, the year of the cooperative, the UN had said this is a year of the cooperative, international year of cooperative. It became real clear that we don't tell our story enough. The co-ops don't tell a story. We don't promote it so people don't understand it. Nobody else would tell the story. Matter of fact, it's, when you talk about the capitalistic folks, those that like capitalism, they're not going to tell the story. It doesn't benefit them to uh, the story to be told. So I'm an accidental, and I like your. I'm a, I'm afraid that too. I'm an accidental cooperator too. It, I must have been 45 or so when I found. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're. <laughs> I'd say we're probably in the same age category. Mm. Um, I was going to mention that you know when I started in 
with the Northwest Cooperative Development Center. And we're not a cooperative, by the way. We're a nonprofit organization that provides technical assistance to groups who are um, either looking to shore up their existing cooperative enterprises or expand it or start new ones. And most of our work is probably in startups. Um, but when I first started this work, there were just a handful of people. And NWCDC uh, was just about the only game in town who was really just just focused on doing cooperative business development. And um, now, the, when I take a look at who all the stakeholders are and all of the people that are interested in doing um, cooperative development, it warms my heart <laughs> because there's a whole lot of people out there that are now uh, looking at cooperative development that weren't before. And they are looking at it now in the um, community colleges. We, from time to time, do um, a call-in with a community college uh, system here in, uh, in the Puget Sound area, and it's with a sociology professor who's teaching it. And um, Pinchot University in Seattle has now added a certificate in cooperative management kind of on the MBA level. And then there's um, some regional groups that are just uh, kind of organically popping up of groups or networks of cooperatives who are also looking to um, help foster new cooperative businesses. So um, it's really, it's, it's kind of cool. It is starting to grow. And I think the financial crisis in 2008 was um, a big driver of that, right? Because our economy as it was had, was leaving people behind in the dust. And people really started to um, think about, you know, how, how could they do for themselves what, the, um, what our communities weren't able to do. And, um, and the Oh, what's the name of that movement that happened right during Occupy Wall Street. I, yeah, Occupy Wall Street. Thank you. The uh, the governance that they were clamming, clamoring for and their independence, we were like in the, behind the scenes saying, we're here. We've been yeah. here for decades. This is what you need. This is what you're looking for. And when we finally got to meet with some of them, they also recognized that too. Well, the there's a gentleman by the name of Herb Fisher. I was very active in the National Association of Housing Co-ops. He was the first one that brought that to my attention and to our organization that what they are looking for is cooperatives. They, they don't know it because they don't know about co-ops, and so we have to let them know about it. Exactly. Okay, so you mentioned that for women, access to child care, providing family goods and services. Um, I had a lady on that talked about how in the credit union side that a lot of women are in charge of credit unions. They're smaller and a lot of men don't want them, but it seems like a nice fit. People can get, women can get the experience and run an organization. So there's a lot of room. And then Jessica Gordon Nimhart in her book, Collective Carriage, talking about the African-American experience. And she went back into the Great Depression is another area where co-ops really flourish. Great Depression, Great Recession in both cases. Uh, But there was a lot of women, African-American women, in the cooperative movement uh, all the way through the civil rights movement and and to today. So there's a lot of history. We have to take our first break, and we'll come back and talk more about your experience in these startups. You've been doing it now, you said, for 16 years. And so we'll talk about that and look at more about women into into this um, cooperative movement and, and how they've been doing it. And the theme that we've been looking at is the same theme that came out of the UN uh, 2012, and that is cooperative enterprises builds a better world. 
So we'll try to figure out how, in, in, for women and the world, we find that co-ops are very, very, very successful. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. 1450 WOL. Information is power. That's the motto of WOL, and that's why NCB is sponsoring this program. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. In a lot of communities, uh, African-American, black and brown communities are economically challenged, and that's one of the reasons I am personally like the cooperatives is because they can go in and show people how they can solve their own community problems. And Diane mm-hmm. from... Washington State, you said you've seen these startups, you've seen how the co-ops have helped women. Uh, How have they helped communities? Well, I think just by their nature, cooperatives help communities. And I guess one of the things that I talk about when I'm first meeting with groups is, you know, finding out what what the need is that they're solving for. And this is regardless of their women or men. And um, and is it... uh, really a, a critical need that they're trying to solve for. Because if it's not, if it's not access to, you know, food and shelter um, jobs, which tend to be the drivers, then maybe they should look, relook at what kind of business that they're trying to start. Um, and But those three things, access to healthy food, shelter, and jobs, are, are also critical needs for communities, too. So they help, they help both. Um, and, uh, and you know, besides the fact that um, when you are creating local businesses and you're doing business with other local businesses, you're um, and you're paying local people, you're keeping that money local. And you're creating that education system that's local as well. So, if somebody wanted to get a, uh, in a hold of you, what were, what's your web page? Um, we have a pretty simple web page. It's nwcdc, or um, and I like to say. N is in Nancy, W, C is in cat, D is in dog, C is in cat, dot co-op, or C-O-O-P. You sound like what you just said a few minutes ago. You sound like uh, Papa Sin. He was uh, one of the first people that was on his show a year, two years and a half, two and a half years ago. He's from Senegal, and he said co-ops are, they help solve community problems. And he, then he said, if there's not a community problem, there's no need for a co-op. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so it sounds like what you're telling people when they come out, really look at why you're doing this and see if there's a really, really need. And if not, you may want to look at something else. But there are, as in Flint, Michigan, there's all kinds of community needs. There's no, there's a food desert is what it's called. There's the water crisis, as everybody knows. Uh, I looked to see if there's a credit union. I couldn't find one in Flint, Michigan. Um, so it's like how to get the people of Flint, Michigan, to, to know about co-ops where they can one of the values is self-help, solve, right. help to solve your own problems, give you the tools to solve your own problems. So is that what you, what you said when you first go out to help people start one? That's sort of like what you end up doing, helping them to get the tools to solve whatever problem they are trying to solve, jobs, well, housing, it yeah, food. It, it helps them focus on what they're trying to do. Normally, um, groups, they want to do everything. And, it's, and I don't want them to lose sight of that. I want them to do everything as well. But they need to start on a, just a one or two things. And, uh, and and do that well, um, and and be sure that they have a good uh, foundation underneath them as they're building their business, and that the foundation of 
governance and shared responsibilities. And that's not easy to do. And that's another reason why um, I, I want to make sure that, that, the, that the co-op model really is appropriate for them. Because if it's not, why, well, one, why go to uh, all the trouble? But two, is that they will probably fail because you have to have that driving uh, passion need to uh, keep people coming back to the table. So can you give us some examples of the kinds of co-ops that you've helped to get started? We work with all kinds of co-ops. Um, right now, about a third of our business, though, is with uh, manufactured home communities and helping the residents purchase the land underneath their home. Um, many of those communities, um, their leadership is made up of women and oftentimes single women or, um, who are uh, single a single parent as well, um, and and yet they find the time to uh, help bring leadership to the community as well. Um, we've worked with renewable energy. We work with um, small and mid-sized ag. We work with food co-ops. Usually the food co-ops we work with are some that don't fit the typical mold um, because there are other organizations, but that's all they do is work on food co-ops. So. Mm -hmm. Um, so we let them. <laughs> they are the experts in that area. But then there are others that um, are going to go about it in a, a different way. And um, and so we, we have the resources. We'll try to help them. Um, I've worked with ag co-ops and, and currently have a group of Latino um, farmers who are doing a community farm. Um, and they have another nonprofit that they're working under, um, so they aren't um, in actuality a standalone entity, business entity, but um, they really uh, value transparency and um, representative governance, and so uh, and, and democratic governance. So we are um, working with them to uh, bring those skill sets, and I think that eventually uh, it will give the nonprofit who's running this community garden a way to expand their community or their their. Uh, their membership within their community garden as they spin off uh, cooperative community gardens that are standalone entities. Um, what else are we working on these days? We've um, uh, home care is another big area that we're um, working in. We've um, assisted three cooperatives, uh, home care cooperatives, launched in the last mm, since 2007. So what's that about eight years, ten years? Nine, nine, yeah, years. nine years. And uh, and. Uh, I think we're starting to see maybe a critical mass happening um, because we're getting more and more calls on that. And um, and we actually are working with uh, NCBA uh, to look at how do we take that that model to scale in rural communities. Um, and it's actually the Cooperative Development Foundation that we're working with. Armas. I'm really excited about um, your manufacturing houses co-ops mm -hmm. and but this health care piece I'm I will be 69 this year so I think I'm a little bit older than you from just kind of game <laughs> but so health home care is really important to me now looking at all of these different variables of of how to live a great quality of life as I get older and older and older I probably mm -hmm. won't need it till I'm 100 but that's a whole nother story right, so right. um how does this home care work? How does that work? Because you talked about rural, but I could see it in urban areas too. Because I think they have a huge one in New York. They do. They, they they absolutely do have a huge one in New York. It's the largest, I think, worker cooperative in the United States. 
but New York is not necessarily replicable in uh, in smaller communities, and uh, the cities tend to have more resources too, in order to um, to launch those kinds of cooperatives, um, at least theoretically, maybe not in actual practice yet, but um, but it's starting to pick up, you know, with New York um, receiving or, or dedicating one or two million dollars towards. Um, cooperative or worker cooperative development and home care worker cooperatives will definitely be a strategy of that. And um, Madison, Wisconsin has done something similar, and um, and I think it's uh, a community in California has done something too. So that's starting to pick up, and uh, and hopefully we'll see more resources for urban environments that have um, not been there in the past. Uh, but rural communities have another challenge because they don't necessarily have the population um, that's going to immediately say, yes, this is going to be feasible. They really need to have um, buy-in from community leaders and partners and uh, and a good majority of the home care providers that are located there. So, uh, And we're seeing some success and, and some very good successes where the cooperatives are being the um, agency of choice. And, um, and so what happens is that the home care providers usually are already home care providers themselves, but um, but they go into the homes of folks and um, and they help them with their daily activities. Um, and there's some each state has different regulatory issues, so we need to be aware of that um, and and what kind kinds and levels of care are acceptable. Um, Washington State, um, you have to be a licensed agency in order to um, be a home care worker cooperative. Yet in um, Hawaii. You don't have to be, at least yet. Okay. Um, however, they have some other needs that help drive that, those um, quality standards. Well, Diane, uh, have you seen the book Cities Building Community Wealth? I have not. All I'm right. writing it down, though. Okay, and you can go online. The Democracy Collaborative, they wrote the that. book. Yeah. And uh, on their webpage, you can get a copy of it, the PDF copy of it. Uh, but it talks about Madison, uh, I think it's $1 million a year for five years, and New York, I think it was $1.5 last year and 2.7 this year, something like that. So they've increased. Mm-hmm. Um, so they talk about what it takes for cities, uh, and they call progressive uh, politicians. And they, I think they looked at 20 different cities and what they're doing in these different cities. Uh, we have to take our second break. I'm enjoying this very much, and I want to get back to – Rock USA, and uh, we did have Paul Bradley on the show once. It's manufactured home communities. So we have a lot more we can talk about, and I'll give a definition of a co-op and a different types. But we'll be right back after the news and the weather and traffic. 1450 WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks talking to you about cooperatives, everything about cooperatives. And, you know, a cooperative can be any business you can think of. Any business that you can think of could be a cooperative. And if the business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. If it's owned and controlled by the people that buy the services or products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. So any business that you can think of, it could be owned by the employees. And in some cases, like housing co-ops or credit unions, and there's a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, where the patients own the health clinic. Those are called consumer co-ops. 
And then you have the other two major types is when people come together to market their products and service, marketing co-op. And if they come together to buy goods that they need, and then you have farmers coming together to market their products. And if they come together to buy equipment or seed or artists come together to, to share a building, they share resources, it is called a purchasing cooperative. So those are the major four, but you can have all kinds of different variations. Did I do a fairly good job of that, Diane? You did a great job of that. That's okay. how I would characterize it, too. Then there's everything in between. Okay. Yeah. And, and so anybody out there, if you come together with a group of people and you, you share your skills and your talents and your resources, we had a lady on Harriet May out of El Paso, Texas, that said five men got together and put up $5 each. 1940s or something, and they started a credit union that is now a billion dollars worth of assets. So it can grow with people working together, pooling their assets and their talents, and then you have a better chance of success. Uh, during the Great Recession, you didn't have the kind of foreclosures and housing co-ops that you found in condominiums and single-family homes because folks that come together and working together for what's best for the, in this case, the owners of the housing co-op, they don't make these bad real estate deals. They just they make less riskier deals, and they do things that's best for everybody. That's the other reason I love these, this co-op thing. So I told you I wanted to come back. Do you have anything that you wanted to add to what I just said? Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting about the, the credit union story and the five men with $5 each starting it. I think that that's um, often kind of a... a a typical number that we see with startup cooperatives is you know, usually it's about five people that come together that are willing and um, have the vision um, and are the champions for that project. And they will do much of the footwork until um, they're ready to launch. And, and that's different in a large consumer co-op where you need to have a lot of money to start. But if you can get it going with a little bit of money, you'll see a few people. And then there will be that next wave of folks who are just kind of sitting on the fence watching to see if it's going to work, and then if it works, and they're ready to, you know, jump in at that time, and then, and then it, you know, continues to move out from there. But that's not unusual. Well, the other thing is that I am learning: the employees at Oaks Management, the property, we're in a, been in the process now for almost a year of changing to a worker-owned cooperative. It's the training and the attitudinal change that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that sometimes that can take a long time. One two, three, four, five years. I don't know about in the startup, but in this change, uh, just getting people to understand what does it mean to make decisions together and how you resolve conflict and all of those different kinds of things. Yeah, I think the folks that um, came up with the seven principles of uh, cooperative, education is one of those. And um, and I think it's a reason that it's, it's there um, in perpetuity because that education has to continually happen. And co-ops usually are created not to just last one generation, that they're there to be um, in existence for a long time. And so you're going to have this turnover of leadership, and they're going to have the people that weren't there in the beginning um, who really recognize that critical need. So you have to continue to tell that story. And it might go away. And if it goes away, then there's that conversation about do we, are, you know, do we remain in existence? Have we served our purpose? Um, do we have a new purpose? Are we a market regulator instead of a... Uh, you know, breaking into a market. And um, and that might be a, real, a really good reason to remain in business, too. Because um, it's a sad thing when co-ops go away, but sometimes they do. Yep. 
but in what I have found, I want to come back to education, but what I have found in this um, property side of it is they go away when they do not have integrity to cooperative principles and their bylaws or the laws of the land. They go away when people start doing things that they should not be doing. Uh, and that could be the board members or members or management or developers. There's all kinds of people that want to come in, particularly like in D.C. right now. The price of real estate have gone way up. And so people are wanting to come in and take over this property and make money for themselves. And so if you don't have integrity, that co-ops can go, can go away. That would be the negative reason. It may not be that there's no more need for them. It may be that, that they're not being managed well, managed, governed well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the first reason I end up loving co-ops is for the fifth principle, education, training, and information. And it has to be ongoing. And what I like also about co-ops when I've been around them is that people, cooperators really share information. They don't hold it. They don't hold it in like, you know, if I give you my my secrets, then you can take my customers or you can do blah, blah. So it's just this whole sense of, of uh, sharing information so that everybody can improve part of concern for community, which is the seventh, and part of cooperation among cooperators, cooperatives, is this sort of sharing data, sharing information, sharing whatever needs to be shared to help everybody grow. Mm-hmm. Has that been your experience? To some extent. Not entirely. Um, um, because there are still, I think, that those inherent fears of market, and it depends on what in, uh, sector you're in. Um, and whether or not that information is held very close to the vest or not. But I think in the terms of governance and just uh, good practices, that um, all co-ops, regardless of their sector, are willing to uh, share those things. Okay. And maybe more so these days than others, I think. Maybe it's because we just keep pushing on them and say, you know, this is your duty. It's part of your responsibility to help others. We just talked about the fifth, sixth, and seventh principle. The first one is open and volunteer membership. Being African American and having experienced racism, I like that a lot. <laughs> that it, you can be a member it doesn't make any difference of your gender, your social, where you come from, race, politics, religion. They just open membership. Right. Democratic member control, one member, one vote. Members economic participation. There's normally some money come in. We just talked about five men starting with five dollars each, but if there's a surplus or profit, then the members would decide what happens to that, and sometimes there could be dividend. There could be money that comes back to the members. We, that's what we hope for, usually. Yes. yes. Or, or cut in price. Well, you know, it could show up in all kinds of ways. Uh, you could, in a food co-op, they could get, I don't know, script or coupons to come buy food, <laughs> or they could get cash, or they could get lower prices. Or they save the money for growth into the business. But the members is what I like. The members decide that. And then the, the last was autonomy and independence. I said they've got to own it and control it. Not the government, not the people that loan them money, but the members have to make the decisions and create the policies. Right. You were going to say something? Nope. I'm <laughs> okay. disagreeing with you. Just, okay. Sorry. <laughs> so going back to this manufactured uh, housing communities, when you said they were single women, what's the economics, the social economics? Are they wealthy, middle class, relatively poor, working poor? What's the the economics of the folks that you've been working with? Well, our experience has been that they are primarily poor, 
and primarily poor. Yeah. Okay. And we have so currently in our portfolios of communities that we service for Rock USA, we have um, nine communities. Uh, we started doing this work in 2008, and um, it took us a long time to actually to break into the business because here in Washington State. Um, the real estate listings that go out are um, usually communities that have been on the market for a long time, and there's a reason they've been on the market for a long time. is because uh, Usually it's because they're overpriced, um, and nobody's going to pay that amount. And so the deals that are doable are what they call these pocket deals. And so they um, tend to be um, things that aren't public, um, that happen just between brokers. And so we've... Um, worked very hard at proving ourselves to be um, a real player in the market and um, and that, that they will get a good deal with us and that they can actually uh, do good for a community, too, if they sold it to their residents. Um, so in 2012, we had our second community that we uh, helped a group purchase, and then, uh, and then it followed in 2013 with a second one, and in 2014, we did three more, and then in you know, so it's just been starting mm-hmm. to snowball. So now we have nine communities. Of those nine communities, three of them are primarily Latino-owned um, immigrants and um, and are working in ag-based community or uh, industries, um, which takes them out of their home from very early in the morning until late at night, and yet um, they still step in to, to help with uh, the governance of their communities. So they're they're working extremely hard to make this happen, and it's um, both genders. The women tend to not be in the field as long, and so they, um, uh, if we can find help them, you know, arrange for childcare, um, or arrange for childcare between one another, um, have a maybe a, a little bit larger window in order to participate in that that leadership piece. But then getting past the cultural aspects of that too have been somewhat of a challenge too. But we're seeing it happen. And um, slowly but surely, uh, women are starting to, I guess, make decisions on their own. Make decisions on their own. Yeah. Okay. Um, just because of the Latino culture, it tends to be uh, male dominant. Yeah, male dominant. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I wanted to go back to it is because uh, it's a bit of what I have found in housing communities, uh, particular f- limited equity co-ops. There. Normally, poor people are the members, and they they can operate so efficiently. You don't need a college degree, and in some cases, in most cases, in limited equity co-ops, you don't have college degree people. You have best a high school degree, and relatively poor. I mean, working poor at best, um, and they can learn how to run a business and hold each other accountable. It's amazing to see. Um, people bloom in those roles and uh, come into their own. Uh, I, I, some of your words are not coming across so clear, so I want to repeat, people bloom, <laughs> okay? I hear that. It's amazing to watch people grow into leadership and bloom. Matter of fact, when Paul Bradley was on the show from Rock USA, he talked about a lady, I don't think it was in Wisconsin, I mean in, in Washington State, it might have been Wisconsin, but how when she first came, knew nothing and said she wanted to learn and was very shy. Uh, but now I'm to see her at a mic in total control and understanding the numbers and, you know, carrying the meeting because she's the president of their community. It's amazing to watch people bloom. You're right. 
we're getting ready to go in our third break and final break. The hour's almost over. I'm really enjoying this, Diane. It's the values of cooperatives are based on the values of self-help. We talked about that. Self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. But the, in the tradition of the founders of cooperative, cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others, caring for each other. And so that's, again, why I like these old-timey values that really work when people put it into place. And I want to come back and ask you to talk about how you measure these. When I went on your webpage, I was very impressed with the measurement tools that you are working with. So we're taking our final break, and then we will be right back and get as much in as we can, Diane. Okay, thank you. Fourteen fifty WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, Everything Cooperative, and we have Diane Gassaway on the phone with us, who's the executive director of Northwest Cooperative Development Center in Washington, way across the U.S. Mm, Diane, beg your pardon. We're AC instead of DC. Network. Okay. <laughs> well, um, how, how do you measure? these values and see if a co-op is living up to them? Well, I think you're referring to the um, cooperative uh, index. Measuring the cooperative advantage. Yeah, yes. and um, and I have to admit that I am not the best person in our organization to talk to you about that. Okay. Um, that's a new tool that we're learning, um, and it's being um, taught to us by one of our staff members who's a graduate of the St. Mary's cooperative management program in Halifax, um, and he's uh, also working on his Ph.D. Um, from there. But um, he's bringing this cooperative index to us that's a tool to help cooperatives determine how well they're meeting their values and the cooperative principles and a way to measure their success beyond just dollars and cents. And, um, and so... Uh, I did just while we were on break, I brought up one of the reports for a community that he's working with to uh, see if I could just give you a little bit more broad uh, explanation of what it looks at. And mm-hmm. um, and for them, they're looking at the um, organizational maturity of the, of the business, the organizational trust within the cooperative, um, how well is that they um, are serving the cooperative values and the cooperative principles. And, um, and it's a tool then for the board of directors or the membership or, you know, however they work with their governance. And, and I guess this is an opportunity to, for me to kind of put a plug in for sociocracy, which is what this um, uh, worker cooperative follows, and, uh, and that's uh, a form of consent. So the whole membership is seeing this uh, to use in their strategic planning on how they want to grow the business, what's, what's really important to them, and what's the story that they want to be able to tell in a few years, and, and how do these aspects play into that. Well, see, you know a lot more about it than I do and the rest of the people out there in this index, but I, see, the, my first major was math, and the second was marketing and, and finance at the MBA state. So it's always I like numbers. I like to be able to measure how well we're doing it. We say, so when I saw this, I'm very excited about it. It's sort of like working with the National Association of Housing Co-ops, I wanted us to be able to put in place some kind of measure 
financial measure than a measure of the facility, how, how well it is kept up, and then how well we're doing as a cooperative. And so this is the first time I've seen this measure, and I like it. So I'll get into more about it of how you, how you do this and see if I yeah, can learn I, about it. I would just share that some of the things that fall under that, so I've just switched the page. Okay. <laughs> um, they look at the cooperation among the cooperatives, you know, how well are they doing with other cooperatives in their community, the development of the cooperative members personally and professionally, mm-hmm. the environment that they work in. There's a fun factor in there, too. Are they having fun? F-U-N fun? F-U-N fun. <laughs> okay. That's a, I like that measure. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, leader competence, ownership, participatory knowledge, personal poli- personnel policies and recruitment, and then there's the principles that they look at and, and the values that you stated, too. And then there's a whole host of other things. It's, it's quite a long, um, in-depth survey. Um, I think somewhere around 125 questions. So uh, it's, it's something that uh, leadership has to be committed to doing. So it's sort of like a 360 where you not only ask the employees or the owners, but you'd ask the vendors and perhaps the client uh, customers that's an interesting of... aspect. Yeah, I don't know if it is or not. I, 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 how I've seen it deployed is just uh, within the membership. Okay. Um, but I, I think there's so much value that you get out of um, what other stakeholders are looking at or, or perceiving your business as. Too. So, what would you like to tell me and our audience now? We only have about I don't know eight more minutes or so to go. Um, if you're at all interested, keep you know researching cooperatives. You know, talk to folks in the schools. You know, when people start asking and pushing for things, and that's when uh, when we'll see change. So uh, we just have to keep those conversations alive. I'm so thrilled to be part of this program today uh, because that's just one more aspect of um, getting the word out about cooperatives. And I really appreciate Vernon your um, commitment to it. Thank you. I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this question then. Mm-hmm. You said you were in a bank, uh, in, the, in sort of in the capitalistic side of the world. You got in accidentally uh, into the cooperative side, but you won't go back. So why not? What's the difference? Uh, respect, uh, ability to have, you know, your voice heard. Um, I think that's that, that particularly within the home care worker cooperatives. That's something that we hear a lot about the benefit of the cooperatives is that their voices are heard. Um, it's not so much about, um, and, and although it's important, is that they get paid a little bit better and they have the opportunity to share in profits where they wouldn't have had that before. But um, but more than that, and this, and this happens immediately, is that their voices are heard. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about um, uh, or, well, something for my thoughts about this because I was writing down these notes about it, about mm-hmm. the um, fiduciary responsibilities of the leadership and um, and members. And I would, uh, you know, I like to uh, talk to all members about their potential to be leaders, and it should be a revolving door. There should be people coming in and out. It shouldn't be just a few mm-hmm. select that uh, to get that get that privilege. Um, that, that that's not cooperative cooperating. And it's not uh, following through on all the principles. But those fiduciary responsibilities include this, um, what we call duty of care and duty of loyalty. And uh, a third one that's attributed to cooperatives is duty of obedience. Um, and that's setting aside your personal needs for the greater good. And oftentimes, the people that come together in cooperatives 
you are a bit homogenous, at least in um, the, the communities where you live or, um, or the needs that you're serving or, you know, trying to solve for. You have those things in common. So you, you have this homogeneity that happens within a membership. But despite that, people may have their own personal agendas and things that they think that, I just really need this, and, and yet it may not be good for the whole group. And so you need to have leaders that are willing to take the bird's eye view and look at what's best for the community, not just what's in it for me. Yes, that, that is critical. And that's what I've liked is when I see decisions made that are made for everybody in the boat, not just for a few, and how, mm-hmm. how, how good it feels, that, which gets me to my a question I want to make sure I get before we get off air is, do you like what you're doing? Can't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I want to, I want to <laughs> yes, do I you? absolutely do like what I'm doing. And Why? My neighbor, my neighbor tells me that I need these social skills because I like to talk about cooperatives a lot. It's, it's my world and these days, and um, there's just no better way of uh, doing business, in my opinion. So, so she says you need new social skills because you only talk about co-ops. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, it fills you know eighty percent of my time, and uh, frankly, I don't have a lot else to talk about. <laughs> well, I'm trying to work on that. <laughs> no, I don't. I I don't want to work on it. And right now, I've got four goals in life. I, I said about seven years ago, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up, and that is I promote co-ops, develop co-ops, educate people about co-ops. And then raise money or give money to people that do those three things. Here, here. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> yeah. that's that's my life. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm doing, and so that's what I will talk about. And get with people like you that that's what you want to talk about too, because just like you said, with with, with these, um, which used to be called trailer parks, they're they're now called um, what what did you call them? Manufactured home communities. Yeah. But they were always the poorest of people in these small communities. Now, you can have some very nice manufactured home. They look just like any other house. But too, also very often, and I grew up in West Virginia, it's the poorest of poor that live there. And, again, they either didn't have jobs or had very, very you know, low-paying jobs. But they're good people. And then if you get these people together, you find out what you just said, is that they can make very, very good decisions. And I think you said they bloom. They get educated, and that's the other thing. They have to be consistently and continually educated because also one group will go out and you get a new group of board members, and they have to be educated so that they make those informed decisions. Yeah, you know, something that's really important about that, too, the manufactured home communities is that they're, um, that we we don't want to let go, is that they're limited equity. So they remain affordable forever and ever. They, um, they, they, They are designed to take out the incentive to sell at uh, at market rates because you just can't do it. When I first heard about these 20 years ago, I thought it was white people trying to make sure that black people didn't make any money. Oh, no. And I didn't like them. Now, when I know more and wiser about it, it, if you take a, I would call it a trailer park for black, if you take a trailer park owned by an individual that's just trying to make money and you take a limited equity home and that's owned by the individuals, they will make some money. But they'll have control and they'll have a better lifestyle than normally with somebody on it. And so I love limited equity co-ops now. Yeah, they still own their homes and those still appreciate. As a matter of fact, they tend to appreciate faster in cooperative communities because the communities are being taken care of. They're not being held by um, uh, landowners who are not taking care of the infrastructure, taking care of the sewer and the water, et cetera, and letting the roads go to hell. We've got to go. What what do you want to say 
cooperate? Learn more about cooperative? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Uh, go and cooperate. Thank you so very much, Diane. I look forward to meeting you. Likewise. All right. Have a great okay. day. Everybody, we'll see you next month where we're talking internationally. Uh, we're looking at the month for international uh, and we are having a lot of good people on. We'll talk to you next Thursday and every Thursday thereafter. Have a great, great week and cooperate. 1450 WOL.